Please find in your copy of God's Word, 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be reading verses 1 through 4 together of 2 Peter chapter 1, where the apostle writes, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is God's word. Well, in an article in the UK Telegraph that was written last week, titled, Hollywood Makes 2013 the Year of the Sequel, Nick Allen, columnist, writes the reason for this. He says, by one count, a record 31 sequels and 17 reboots are expected to hit screens next year as executives steer clear of original and potentially costly ideas. Why the fascination with sequels in Hollywood these days? Keith Samantin, the managing editor of Internet Movie Database, said the number of sequels did not necessarily mean Hollywood was running out of original ideas, but maybe that's the case, but that sequels, quote, tend to make more money. He said, quote, at the end of the day, you go with what you know because the audience seems to go with what they know. Mr. Samantin said, people have a very difficult time when you don't know what a property is. It's hard to blaze a new trail. With reboots, they have a pre-built world and they have recognition. Well, this morning we're entering a sequel of sorts. As we continue our sojourn through the letters of the Apostle Peter, only this sequel is not at all about money. Peter has a completely different motive for continuing the theme he started in his first letter. His motives, his main motive, is to see his readers grow in godliness. In fact, this theme of growing in godliness actually bookends the letter. If you notice First Peter or Second Peter chapter 1 verse 4, he writes, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, that you might be godly. And then at the very end of the letter in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So this idea of godliness and 
his main purpose for writing bookends Second Peter. Why such a focus on godliness? Why such a focus on being like God? I mean, why is that the big issue and the big agenda for Peter, it seems, both in his first letter and in his second letter? Well, this is the reason why we were created. We were created, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 1, to image God. That is, to be like him in our character. But because of Adam's sin in Genesis 3, the entire human race has been plunged into ungodliness. Romans 1.18 writes, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. Man is by nature, according to the Bible, ungodly. However, God is committed to reclaiming a people and he has sent his son to die in our place for our ungodliness and that we might become more godly. You remember these familiar verses, don't you? Romans chapter 5 verse 8 states that Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus didn't come in the world looking for godly people. He came into the world to die for ungodly people, which is all of us. And Romans chapter 4 verse 5 confirms that through faith in Christ, God justifies the ungodly. And after we come to Christ and Christ justifies us by his life and his death, then we can begin in the language of Titus chapter 2 verses 11 to 14 to renounce ungodliness. And according to 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 7, train ourselves for godliness. That's God's agenda in the world is the reclamation of godliness. And that's why Peter's writing. So I feel greatly encouraged by that fact. And I feel greatly encouraged that we're going to be moving through this letter the next couple of months because I feel like we're with God in this. I feel like what we are going to be preaching on and teaching on from this pulpit is what God wants to happen in the world. And what God wants to happen specifically in our lives as Heritage Baptist Church. So it's in this text this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1, 1 through 4, that Peter gives us five reasons why we in fact can be godly. Isn't that encouraging? We can be godly. And I want to give you five reasons why that is a possibility. Why God's reclamation project will not fail. What certainties God has set in place that will enable us to grow in our likeness to him. So here's the first one. God has God's purchase of us is the first reason why we can be godly because of God's purchase of us. Notice what Peter says in verse one, Simeon or Simon, Peter, Simeon is sort of a Hebraic translation of Simon, but either one's acceptable. Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Peter begins his letter by identifying himself by both his birth name, Simon or Simeon, and the name that was given to him by Jesus. You remember when this happened, don't you? John chapter 1. We read one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. 
He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Jesus gave him a new name. He gave him a new identity. And that's what happens when we follow Jesus. When we yield ourselves to Christ, when we come to Christ by faith, when we commit our lives to follow him, Jesus gives us a new identity. And Peter describes this identity as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, of course, Peter's identity is unique to Peter in some ways. We're not apostles, nor will we ever be. We're not the foundation of the church in the same way that Peter was. But that first part of that identity, a servant, does apply to us. Peter is no longer defining himself by his previous life. He's defining himself by what Christ has made him to be, a servant. He also writes to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter reminds the Christians to whom he's writing that he's not any more loved by Jesus than they are. Before Jesus, every Christian is on the same plane as Peter. Even though Peter has a unique call, nevertheless, his faith is not substantively different from our faith, but it's in a faith of equal standing. He's not in some higher spiritual category. This phrase also underscores the fact that our faith is a gift from God to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. And that word obtained is used in John chapter 19 to refer to how the garments that after Jesus was on the cross were divided out. They were divided out by lot. So when something is received by lot, it's received as a gift. And Peter's saying, you have received the same faith that I've received. Our faith gives us equal standing with each other. So he's writing as one who has a great deal of authority to write as an apostle, but he's also coming down to their level and saying, look, we're Christians. Now, what's this phrase by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, mean? There's a couple different ways that phrase could be taken. It could refer to the fact that through, through our faith in Jesus Christ, God gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, this this phrase is talking about justification. It's talking about the fact that when we come to Christ and receive Christ and believe in him and trust in him, that his righteous record is given to us. That could be what Peter is saying. Another possibility is that God was absolutely righteous in giving us, in providing this faith of equal standing with the apostles, that God was righteous in doing that. And I don't think we have to draw really a hard line between those two ideas. I think what Peter is basically saying is this faith that we share together, you as the Christians to whom I am writing, me as the apostle, is a faith of equal standing that is grounded in the saving righteousness of God. Now, why in the world does all that matter in our pursuit of godliness? I said that's a reason that we should be godly. Think about it. Sometimes we sin and behave in ungodly ways because we forget who we are. We forget. We forget that we have a new identity. We forget that we're no longer defined by our past. 
We forget that it's not that it's not what we think or who we think we are, but rather who God says we are. That's the main issue of our identity. And Peter and the apostles frequently when they write their letters, they remind themselves and those to whom they are writing of who they are and who those to whom they are writing are. Brothers and sisters, we would be more godly if we recognized that we were servants of Jesus Christ. We just would. If that were more of an issue that was on the front of our minds and in our hearts and in our conscience and something that informed the way we thought and lived. And so Peter brings that right out and says, look, you are the purchased possession of God, church. We have a faith of equal standing. We have a righteousness that's been provided to us by our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are to be servants of his. And if we were to recognize that, embrace that as our default operating identity, we would pursue godliness more. And Peter encourages us in that way. So that's the first reason that we can be godly is because of God's purchase of us. The second reason we can be godly is God's posture toward us. God's posture toward us. Verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that we belong to God and have been accepted by him through faith in Christ, what is God's posture toward his people? Well, it's clear. Grace and peace. God's grace refers to his commitment to be kind to us, his heart to do us good, and his help that is continually made available to us. And God's peace refers to our state of well-being as a result of being reconciled to God and forgiven by him. This objective peace with God yields a settled sense in our souls that all is well between us and the Lord. And it produces a sweet serenity and tranquility in our lives. And God's disposition is that this kindness, this heart for good, this available help, this commitment to subjective peace would be multiplied to us. That is, it would be ever increasing and always abounding and lavished on us in full measure. God wants us to go on experiencing his kindness and love and peace throughout our lives. And that's Peter's blessing For those to whom he is writing. As we go on knowing Christ, which is the way we experience this multiplied grace and peace, that's what he says, right? May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So as we go on knowing Christ by relating to him personally through his word and prayer, God's grace and peace are multiplied in our lives. God desires us to grow. As we draw near to him and supplies us with his favor and fills us with peace as we walk with him. Now, how does this work itself out and motivate us to pursue godliness? Well, think about this. The roots of our sinfulness and our, as far as the roots of sin that still remain in our hearts. Go back to the fall with Adam. And one of the ways that Satan got Adam and Eve to sin was he got them to doubt God's goodness. Didn't he? He got them to 
question whether or not God was really for them. God was really after their good. God was really being kind in forbidding them to eat from that tree. Isn't that what he did? And Adam and Eve started to believe that subjectively. Yeah, maybe God is kind of a tyrant. Maybe he is kind of bossing us around. Maybe he isn't really out for our good. Maybe he doesn't love us. And what Peter is trying to do is demolish that idea. He comes and says, no, this is God's posture towards you. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we're convinced that God is for us in that way, that as we pursue godliness, grace and peace, God's kindness, God's love, God's heart, God's passion, God's, that, that our subjective sense of peace and our obje- the objective realities of grace will pervade our souls, that if we're convinced of that, we'll want to be godly. We will want to be godly because one of the reasons our growth is stunted is because we still have Adamic thoughts of God. We still have thoughts of God that say, judge first, father second. And the gospel comes along and says, no, no, no. Faith of equal standing, righteousness provided to you, grace and peace multiplied to you. That's God's heart. That's God's desire for you. And if we get that in our hearts and we're relating to him on that personal level that allows us to experience that as we grow in our knowledge of God, as we grow in our knowledge of Jesus and what he's done for us, as we begin to relate to him and fellowship with him, our sense of of his grace and his peace will be multiplied to us and our growth will not be stunted. But we will have that fresh awareness, that fresh sense upon our hearts and we will desire to pursue godliness. So that's the second. God's purchase was the first. God's posture toward us is the second reason we can be godly. We can never blame our lack of pursuing godliness on God because God's posture is One of making grace available to us continually, offering peace to us repeatedly, saying, come to me, come to me. Help is available. I will give it to you. I will multiply it to you. I will lavish it on you. I'm not stingy. Will you have it? Number three, God's power for us. God's power that's made available for us. Verse three, his divine power has granted to us granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has provided us with everything we need to live a godly life. I just said it. Now I confirmed it. God's power provides what God demands of us. See, God's not the kind of father that just throws out a command and then says, get to it. God's the kind of father that says, here's my desire for you. This has always been my desire for you. I've sent Jesus to purchase you so that I can reclaim this desire in you to make you godly, to to make you like myself. And I come along and provide you with grace, peace, and divine power to help you in that. I'm going to grant to you all things, everything you need that pertains to life and godliness. And how does that come to us? Again, Peter says what he says in verse two, through the knowledge of him. See, this is critical. 
we can't be godly without God. We cannot be, like, we can't be godly by just trying harder. Now, there's a dimension to effort in the Christian life. I'm not undermining that. We'll get to that later in the letter. In fact, Jonathan will start off next week with verse 5, which says, make every effort. <laughs> so that's, a, that's, that's important. But I'm just saying, this is important too. This is why he wrote verses 1 through 4 before he wrote verse 5. Because this is what provides power for godliness. This is why people aren't godly. It's because they haven't tapped into God's divine power. I know that sounds really charismatic, doesn't it? Tapping into God's divine power. Sorry about that. Um, But I'm just using Peter's language here, okay? So God's divine power has granted to us everything we need, and it comes through the knowledge of him. Peter obviously thinks that us getting to know God is going to have a profound effect on our moral character. Like he really thinks that. He really thinks like, if you get to know God, you'll be changed. And that's true. We've experienced that. I mean, we got saved because we came to a knowledge of God. And he's saying, you'll grow the same way. You'll grow as you relate to God. This is why at the beginning of the new year, it's so important what Pastor Jonathan stressed last week about the Bible and prayer. Those aren't the only means of grace. We're going to have another one tonight. There's corporate means of grace and personal means of grace. There's, there's, there's prayer and there's the Bible and there's the Lord's Supper and there's corporate worship and there's all those things. But at the center of all those things has to be the knowledge of God. It has to be that helps me know God better. Because as we get to know him, divine power can be released in our lives and can begin operating for us so that we can begin to have what we need to fight sin and pursue godliness. It all comes through the knowledge of him. Again, we're back to relationship with Christ. Notice the next phrase, who called us, that is the knowledge of him who called us to or by his own glory and excellence. This is a reference to our conversion. This is a reference for how we got saved. How did you get saved? You got saved by understanding who God was and who you were, who Christ was, and then seeing something of glory and excellence in that, that captured your heart and won you over. That's how... And and Peter used the language of calling here, who called us to his own glory and excellence. When we place our trust in Jesus and receive him as our Lord and Savior, it was a result of God's divine summons. He called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, it's clear that we're called to God's glory and excellence. That means that we are to live a life that reflects his character and images his glory. However, I think probably the word by should be used instead of the word to saying through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, because I think that's what Peter is getting at and talking about. He's saying that God called us to himself. When God called us to himself, he did it by revealing to us and us perceiving his beauty, virtue, glory, and excellence. That's how, I mean, that just confirms what Paul says in 2 
Corinthians chapter four, that we are, that the light of the gospel shines in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I think that's what Peter's saying here. He and Paul are operating on the same wavelength. And he's saying that we got saved by seeing beauty and excellence and glory in Jesus Christ. Here's the way Tom Schreiner puts it. He says, those whom God saves are called by Christ. And this calling is accomplished through the knowledge of Christ's glory and goodness. In other words, when God, when Christ calls people to himself, they perceive the beauty and loveliness of his moral character. His character becomes exceedingly attractive to them and they trust Christ for their salvation. And what does that have to do with becoming godly? Everything, everything, because Peter says that divine power comes into our lives through the knowledge of Christ's beauty, excellence, and glory. And if divine power comes into our lives through that, that's what we need to become godly. We need a vision, an ever-increasing, ever-growing vision of the glory of Jesus. That's it. That's how people become godly. They recognize that they are slaves of Jesus, that they've been purchased by Jesus, that they've been loved by Jesus. They, they get the fact that God's posture towards them is grace and peace and love and mercy continually. And then more and more, they begin to revel in and enjoy the glory and beauty and virtue and excellence of Jesus. And you know what? Their life starts to change. At least in a way that God wants it to change. People can roll over new leaves. I mean, this is the season, right? Start things you're going to quit in February. Do it now. You know, roll over the new leaf, roll over the new leaf. God wants new life. New life. And that only comes through his divine power being operating in the soul of a human being. And that comes through the knowledge of him. So if, if growing in godliness is one of your goals this year, which I trust it is for all of us, but that's not attached to growing in knowledge of God, we're, we're swimming up the wrong creek. Is that even, what did I just say? We're trying hard for something that's never going to happen. Right? The knowledge of God has to be right there in the center of all of that because that's where God's divine power gets released. Because we come into contact with him. It's not like God has power here. I'll give it to you if you know me. It's like, no, as we know him, we know power. As we know him, we know excellence. As we know him, we know, we know virtue and, and glory. And that sight and experience of glory changes people. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Glory changes people. Glory changes people. And that's what Peter says too. So... This means that we grow in godliness and relatively the same way we were converted in the first place by observing the beauty of Jesus. So number four, God's promises to us are another reason for godliness. So we've got God's purchase of us, God's posture toward us, God's power in us, and then God's promises to us. Verse four. By which, that is through the, knowledge of us, through the knowledge of him, we get these, by which he has granted to us. See, this is all gift from God. Isn't it great? God's just, God's a great giver. He just gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises. 
through being converted, coming to know Christ, we inherit a bank of promises from God. And these promises are described as precious and very great. I love that. I love that. God's promises to us are to be precious to us and very great. I mean, this ring is precious to me. It's precious to me. I hope I never lose it. I think it's on there pretty good. You you guys know after a while it gets pretty stuck on there. And it represents my wife. And I love her. And it's precious. This is a precious thing to me because of what it represents. But you know what's even more precious to us? The promises of God. This represents a promise to my wife. And that promise is precious to me. But what's more precious to me is the cross of Christ, which is God's promise to me. And that's the way it should be. We should, we should see a preciousness and a very greatness to the promises of God. Now, what, did, what promises did Peter have in mind when he wrote that? Well, we don't know for sure. My guess is he had a lot of them in mind. But probably his immediate reference point was the promises concerning the Lord's coming that he's going to talk about later in the letter. Would you flip one page if you've got Second Peter open there and look at Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 4. This is the other time that the word promise is used in the letter. And he says, uh, chapter 3, verse 4, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? That is, those who are unbelieving. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is the promise of his coming? So these precious and very great promises have at their center the second coming of Jesus Christ and all that's going to bring for us, much of which we sang about this morning. So I don't think it's limited to that. Even though Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3 that those promises, that that promise of his second coming is meant to motivate us toward godliness. 2 Peter 3.16, as he, as, 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 I quoted the wrong verse. What verse am I talking about here? Oh, 3, yeah, 314. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So while you're awaiting for these, verse 14 connects back to verse 13, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth. So he says, okay, here's the promise. New heaven, new earth coming. What should that do? Make you godly. The promises are given to us to motivate godliness. So the promises of God, understanding and relishing and enjoying all that God has promised to be and do for us when Christ returns is meant to motivate us to pursue godliness. He says that right in chapter one, verse four, he's granted to us his very precious, his precious and very great promises so that through them, through them, through the promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature. So it's through these promises received into our lives, believed by faith, that we become partakers, that we progressively become partakers and one day will become partakers of the divine nature. Now that's an odd phrase. Partakers of the divine nature. What does that mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you are going to be subsumed into the Godhead. That you're going to be like in the future, 
God's going to take you and swallow you up into himself and make you God. That's not what it means. That's clear from the context. It's not what it means. What's the, what does it mean? What does a partaker of the divine nature mean? It means godliness. Having the nature of God, which is excellent and virtuous and righteous, given to you. Being a partaker of that. Being, when, you, when God looks at you and God looks at himself, he says, yep, that looks like me. That looks like me. Smells like me. I don't know if God smells like anything, but that looks like me. And what Peter is saying is that through these promises, God will one day bring us in the age to come safely home where we will be completely conformed to the perfect image of Christ. And we'll be godly without sin in the age to come. We will become partakers of the divine nature when Christ returns and establishes a new heavens and a new earth. But that doesn't mean that that has nothing to do with the way we live now. First John makes that really clear, right? First John chapter three, when we will be like, we will be like him, John says, for we shall see him as he is. Therefore, whoever has this hope, what purifies himself, even as he is pure. So that hope, if somebody has that hope, I'm going to be like God one day. They become godly now. And the only people who have a warrant for saying that they're going to be with God are those who are becoming like God. That's it. The only people, contrary to what's preached at many funerals in this community, the only people who are going to be with God are those who are becoming like God now. It's imperfect, yes. Mixed with sin, yes. But real, yes. And so these promises are intended to function this way in our lives now. Through believing God's promises, we're able to grow in godliness. And God's promises are a large part of the all things that he says in verse 3 have been granted to us for life and godliness. So let me close with one last point here. We've already said four reasons to be godly. God's purchase of us. We're not our own. God's posture toward us. God's power in us. God's promises for us. And now let me conclude with God's passion in us. God's passion in us. The end of verse four. Having escaped having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Peter says, Christians, you have escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. Now let's just take that one at a time. What's corruption talking about? We'll see this as we move through this letter, but it's really clear. Corruption refers to sin, death, and coming judgment. Sin, death, and coming judgment. And Peter says, you have escaped that. You haven't escaped the presence of sin yet, but you have escaped the power of sin. Sin is no longer ruling over you. It's no longer your master. It no longer dictates your life because you've escaped the corruption in the world through sinful desire. You have escaped that. And you've also escaped death. You're going to pass through death, but it's not going to claim you. Jesus claims you. And you're not going to 
come under the judgment for your sin that the rest of the world will experience at the second coming of Christ. Your judgment has already happened in that regard. You will pass through a judgment, but it will not be a judgment according to your sin. That judgment was finalized at the cross. So he says, those who believed have escaped the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. Now think about that. The root of corruption in our world, the root of sin and death and all kinds of Sandy Hook elementary-like things and self-righteous, proud, picketing kinds of things, the root of all that is sinful desire, Peter says. It's sinful desire. The corruption in the world lies in desires for what's evil, wicked. The material world, of course, is not evil itself. But what corrupts is the selfish desires that dominate human beings outside of Christ. And Peter says that when we come to Christ and we are purchased by him and claimed by him, we're not in that position anymore. We're not ruled by our sinful desires. God has rescued us from that corruption and we're able now to resist our sinful desires because our desires have been transformed. Because what we want to be now is godly. It's not just what we have to be. God's passion is in us. It's what we want to be. Having escaped the corruption in the world means God has implanted in your soul a new passion. It's no longer a passion for sinful desire. It's a passion for righteousness. Godliness becomes the main desire of our lives. Yes, I know, and I've said it. We still struggle with sin, but deep down, our strongest desires, if we are Christians, is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And when we do the things God hates, we hate it. And it's all those things, those five things, and I'm going to summarize them and we're going to be done. But it's all those things, brothers and sisters, do, do we not have incentive to be godly? I mean, one of those things would be enough. I think I was just overwhelmed this week as I was thinking about these things and reading through these things and thinking, God, how kind you are to give us more than we need. More than we need. I mean, God is lavish in this passage. He, I mean, words like multiplied, all things, over and over. Just God wants us to say, look, trust me, I'll take care of you. I will take care of you. So let me summarize. God's purchase of us. We're made righteous by him through faith and become his servants. And this means we no longer have rights to ourselves and sin is dealt, de- dealt a death blow because now we live for him who died for us and was raised again. So we must become who God has made us to be. That is godly. God's posture toward us. He's committed to multiplying kindness and peace toward us. And this will be increasingly experienced by us as we pursue deeper fellowship with him. And this means that we are to believe that God has the best intentions for us in calling us to be godly. We'll not lose anything as a result of pursuing godliness. We'll only gain more of him. God's power in us through experiencing God's glory and excellence in the gospel. We're given power to resist our sin 
God not only calls us to godliness and promises to multiply help to us in the pursuit of it, but he actually fills us with power as we begin to grasp more of his beauty and virtue. God, God's promises to us, he's given us great and precious promises that assist us in the fight for godliness. These promises are superior to the promises that sin offers, and it's through believing those promises that we become like God in our moral character. And this means that this begins now and will complete, be completed when we see him face to face. And then finally, God's passion in us. God has replaced our heart that was so corrupt and filled with desire for sin. And through our conversion, by seeing Christ's glory and excellence, he has caused us to escape. And we now have strong desire for godliness. It's what we want to do. It's who we want to be at the deepest core of our new regenerated being. Isn't that great? <laughs> We belong to God. God's committed to our good. We have the power to resist sin. God's promises are supplied to us for the fight. And we must just go with our deepest desires for godliness. That's why we can be godly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for being so gracious to us and lavishing us with promise after promise after promise in your word. We've been bathing in five of them this morning. Thank you for purchasing us. Thank you for gracing us. Thank you for giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Thank you for rescuing us from this evil world and the corruption that is in it. Thank you for giving us a new passion, a new heart, a new desire, a new power. May we be encouraged this morning to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the glorious second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. We pray in his name. Amen.